the way the meat melts off the bone, the way the fat renders into the onions, the way it all comes together, that is Urdu. My grand-uncle Gozar Nakvi used to say, comparing his favorite language to Nihari, his favorite meats to. It's not language, it's temperament and it must be felt. To many like my uncle, Hindi was the language of the outdoors, that of everyday life, while Urdu became the language of scholarly pursuit and private intimacy. If there are languages that inform about the world as everyone sees it, Urdu is one that brings out the worlds that lie within. I'm fluent in English. I speak English quite well. எனக்கு தமிழ் பேச வரும் ஆனால் அவ்வளோவா பேச முடியாது எனக்கு தமிழ் நல்லா தான் வரும் முச்சுக்கோ ஹிந்தி ஆத்தாஹே மாட்டர் சிங்கல கத்தாக்கரான புல்வாங்க ஹேபாய் எக்ஸ்ட்ரா ஹோந்தனே ஓகே ஷோ சோங்வன் கஷர் மேயோ ஹந்தோ சோங்வன் தி பங்கியோ ஜிபாலம் பெட்டிபே தி ஃபான்சே அனிமேதபரேட் கிட்சா திப்ரீத் ஹே एवरीवन வெல்கம் டு திஸ் எபிசோட் ஆஃப் கிரியேட்டிங் லைஃப் எ பாட்காஸ்ட் அபௌட் பீயிங் பிரவுன் இன் தி 21st செஞ்சுரி I'm Sindhuri Nanda Kumar and I'm Nikhil Venkatesan. So how many languages do you speak Sindhu? I speak 5 and I would say that I speak 4 at a functional level decently fluent mm-hmm. but you know it's it's sad to me that Tamil which is my mother tongue only got bumped up on that list in order of importance somewhere in my teens. You know my parents are tri- were trilingual completely my dad more so like English Sinhalese Tamil mm-hmm. and uh, when you know they went to the local government not government school they went to local schools in sri lanka so they studied their medium of instruction was tamil mm-hmm. so it was always assumed that as kids we would be sent to very similar schools and my dad went to one of the best boy schools in our city um trinity college so when my sister was born older sister it was she was a girl and they, my mom's school wasn't that good so they're like oh shit we can't get admissions for <laughs> a decent school so as a result we were forced to go to international schools and international just for context is doesn't mean that it's always more elite it just means that your medium of instruction is english and you just can't go to local universities mm. so then my mom was like listen you live in sri lanka and you are tamil like my parents are from the same tamil speaking community so she just sent us to tuition classes for both those languages and we would give our teachers grief mm. but my mom was like listen you cannot get out of this so we just bucked up studied she would give us these cinema magazines like uh anand vigadan and yeah. uh, all of that Kung- Kumudam? Uh, Kumudam, yeah. <laughs> Kumudam is also my... <laughs> Kumudam, Kumudam. Okay. And then she would just be like, okay, tell us what, uh, you know, what they're saying. And because at that time, you were watching a lot of Tamil movies on TV, mm. it was relevant and it was interesting. But I missed, I missed an entire, like, English-speaking pop culture train along the way because I was so busy reading Anand the Vigatan. <laughs> my friends would be like, hey, did you listen to this latest Britney Spears song? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm just like, mouth the lyrics. And they're like, shut up, you liars. <laughs> How about you? Uh four languages but only one of them fluently and you know mm-hmm. my relationship with Tamil is similar to you in that I only started around uh when I was 11 mm. so because you know I grew up uh outside Chennai for a long time until that age mm. and it was only when I uh, joined the school in Chennai that I was surrounded by Tamil and 
you know i had to i i was forced to pick it up because otherwise yeah. the kids would make fun of me because i couldn't speak it so the other languages i do speak are chinese because i studied it in college and i also spent a semester in china mm. um and also you know i understand hindi because i studied it in school Ooh. bit of french but just a bit more about my tamil background because it's my mother tongue mm. and i'm not fluent in it and uh you know i'm i'm very conscious of my lack of fluency in it mm. so you know i I don't have any grammar skills uh, in Tamil. All my Tamil knowledge is picked up from movies and uh, you know uh, interviews and uh, posters. I went to Tamil tuition briefly, mm-hmm. uh, so that's where I know the alphabet. But you know my parents did speak it in the household, uh, but they never pressed it upon me to learn it. Um, mm-hmm. It's only been in the I, I would say in the last couple of years that my dad realizes that he's <laughs> made a grave <laughs> mistake. Yeah, I just for I just wanted to button and say like I went to Nikhil South for dinner like a year ago with my cousin and his dad gave this really impassioned speech about Tamil and my cousin who doesn't speak it really well came home and got fired up. It was like, he was all like ga- opening Google Translate. He was like, let me <laughs> he's get all the guns blazing. And then he was like, oh man, actually like he's like I actually don't enjoy <laughs> this language. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I'm also I've also been pretty conscious of it, and I think it's it's a language that. has connected me to this culture that i'm in and it's definitely a language i would definitely want to uh, have a stronger connection to and learn more fluently i guess but wouldn't you say because you have lived outside and inside chennai that do you feel in any way that your relationship with tamil has changed after living in a city where it's spoken widely like yeah i mean <clears throat> just just in that example of me moving here and yeah you know going to school in chennai versus like Hyderabad which is where I was before that and in the US so so just as a result of that i mean if i didn't uh, come to chennai i wouldn't have uh, picked up the little tamil that i know and mm-hmm. i wouldn't have felt this connection to the language mm-hmm. so i think you know the place uh, is a huge uh, reason why you know i am connected to it and do you feel any guilt or regrets about the way in which you approached the learning of tamil Yeah, I mean, I would say that I wish I'd learned it in school, but mm. I mean, I'm I'm also not like 60 years old, like <laughs> I'm not a grandfather, like Yet. I I have time to pick it up and I think that, you know, and especially uh it's interesting how on streaming platforms these days there's a lot of old Tamil movies, especially on Amazon where mm. there's subtitles and mm. you know, I do watch Tamil movies with subtitles just to be able to pick up more words and keep it in my lexicon. Yeah. So you know I'm conscious of it. I I'm, I don't regret it. I, I the fact that I'm more aware of it is itself, you know, I'm mm. I'm glad of that and I'm going to move forward with that yeah. uh, knowledge. I th- I feel like people have very sometimes tenuous relationships with language, right? And it's it's it it depends on really who you are as a person because I know people who don't care about it at all. Mm. But I feel like languages either you feel a certain sense of guilt that you don't speak your mother tongue or that you live in a city where a different language is spoken and you don't speak right. it well enough whereas some people identify more with the city they live in hmm. and speak its language and but one thing that's like really common is that these languages are portals into cultures and we really can understand that much more about a person based on the words they use and if we can understand them because there is so much that is lost in translation after all right like right. from x language to english for instance and i think it helps us have richer relationships with communities places geographies histories as well yeah that's uh, a great segue sindhu well, into... i didn't plan this at all <laughs> 
No, and I think uh, that's extremely relevant to an article you and I recently read mm-hmm. uh, from the writer Sharanya Deepak on long reads, and it's called "Coming Home One Word at a Time." And it talks about her relationship with Urdu, mm-hmm. which is one of the primary languages spoken in Pakistan. It has an interesting relationship with India in that it has this long historical background, and it was brought into India by the Mughal invaders, and it grew over time in different parts of the country in really interesting ways. And those are things that Sharnia gets into in her piece. Yeah, she also gets into her personal relationship with it and how she was able to connect with her Pakistani friends in Brussels, far away from. the two countries and what motivated her to to pick it up again because mm-hmm. her family she she has a very interesting uh, yeah. family mix mosaic yeah yeah mosaic and she talks about how urdu is a portal into a, a culture that does not exist today and it reflects certain values that make it stand in contrast with hindi or uh, yeah. english or these other languages so we thought we would bring her on and speak to her about that Yeah, so let's go speak with Sharnya Deepak. Hi Sharnya, welcome to the show and thanks so much for being with us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Could you just give us some context around this piece that you know really connected to Sindhu and myself? Can you just talk about, you know, how you came up with the idea, you know, how much time you spent on it, just the basic context? when i was i think it all started when i was uh, when i lived in brussels for a bit when i was studying in belgium and i kind of it was weird because a lot of my friends that i made there informally like you know the people that i would meet at at stores or just people on my street and everything uh, tended to be pakistani mm-hmm. for the first time i like you know language when you're living away from the language that you know becomes like it becomes quite a it becomes it becomes a luxury almost to just say anything at all for me in hindi or urdu just became it became like this huge event mm. so i remember thinking about it then and then when i came back i've always wanted to learn i kind of learned when i was in in, in school in class 6 they gave us this option of learning for 3 years so i tried but then it was very lazy teaching <laughs> so nothing really happened and then i used to think about i mean i've always thought about it you know like in delhi we talk a lot about hindi and hindustani and what what we speak and we don't really we don't really speak hindi per se like you know we we'll, we we won't say words like mitra which is the word for friend we'll say those like mm-hmm. so and then i kind of felt that i you know i've always wanted to learn it so when i came back i did it and it was way more emotional than i thought it would be because i just gotten back home right and it's weird it's like way more symbiotic with uh, with with delhi than what we're told hindi is because you know like all of that torment that delhi is always kind of going through and talking about and all of that can make complete like it just makes sense in urdu so mm. i remember when i started learning it i was like you know this is something that we should all do it just makes it just makes more you just kind of get more it's just better to be in sync with delhi than it's a bit of a terrifying city so just you know just for context uh, shanya could you walk us through you know you in the beginning of the article you talk about all the languages that you do speak and that you grew up in so could you just walk us through how many you speak what you grew up listening to at home and roughly like what your relationships with each of them was like both my parents are tamilian but um, but basically my uh, grandfather from my dad's side uh, sorry my great grandfather from my father's side he was part of like i mean there was like 15 tamil families and this is not an exact number that moved to dalbendi which is now pakistan way back like in 1900 like you know in the beginning of the 1900s okay. so he was one of those we look south indian we are 
you know, like we under, but like my dad's kind of this mix of, uh, just like really weird mix of both things. His Tamil itself is really shaky. Mm-hmm. So I remember Ma would speak to me in Tamil because she's, she grew up in Bangalore, only speaking Tamil and English. And she, um, and then my dad would only speak to me in Hindi and his Hindi is, uh, it's a weird one because it's all like learned from his very street Punjabi friends. So it's like, just very, very kind of harsh. Mm-hmm. And then my grandfather would speak to me in English because he wanted me to speak good English and all of that. So I remember being, there being three languages. You know, unfortunately, because I had to go to school in Hindi and English, I my Tamil became a way, like it just, I started, I, I was resentful of it in the beginning because essentially North Indians did not understand, you know, like my accent was made fun of, they couldn't mm. say my last name. Mm. So that was something that I unconsciously kind of distanced myself from, which I re- regret very much. Uh, but yeah, and I remember, it, so Hindi just became, you know, it became the predominant language in my life. Because uh, mm-hmm. that's the thing about, and, but then I learned it in different ways. I learned it from a lot of my friends who are who are also not native speakers because they're Bengali or from, you know, from uh, like Punjab who also, those, those guys speak like their Hindi is also not correct or anything. Right. And then, yeah, so this was how it was. And English, of course, so it was just so Tamil kind of faded away and it was... Uh, Hindi and English that was mainly around. Right. And, um, you know, in in the piece you talk about, uh, and you just mentioned your connection with the diaspora community uh, in Brussels, right? That Urdu was a way of connecting with um, the different Pakistani people that were around you at this time. Um, So so could you you just talk about how that connection sort of came about, um, you know, so so far away from from Delhi, right? And um, how you sort of carried that with you to start your uh, uh, Urdu classes? Yeah, of course. So I think the thing about Urdu is that it's, you know, it's just, if you have to talk about it with function, like things, it's not a language that can actually thrive in the kind of pace that we are, going for globally because everything is it's almost always intimate and it's almost like you know like even to describe a thing or to ask for the time it's always like like it, it, it requires more time than usual languages do. could you give us an and example like, Sharanya, like, from languages. like a phrase that you know for instance if, if you, you know if you were to ask someone for the time like how is it different or how would you phrase it in in urdu you know, like so in so in hindi especially in delhi hindi you if you meet someone on the street you just be like and then they might say ha or na and they'll move. Uh-huh. But with Urdu, you you know, like whenever anyone I know speaks Urdu, uh, by default, will always be like, aap, aap ki hal kya hai, ghar pe sab which is like a, like as a whole other world of communication. Right. Mm-hmm. So I remember being in Brussels and honestly the Pakistanis, so, you know, it's, I think anyone, any pedantic Delhi person will say this, that in Pakistan, they don't actually speak um that much Urdu, but I think like 10% or something speak, but like they speak mostly Punjabi. Mm-hmm. So it is a language that like used to be around here quite a lot. And you can see, you can see it like in, in, in the history of the city when you're thinking about how people used to hang out where, you know, like what they used to talk about, the th- kinds of things that they used to think were more important. Like all the poets, like it's a, you know, it's a city that Ghalib lived in and Meeta Akini lived in and all of that. And so... This is a complete tangent, but when I was in when I was in when I was in Brussels, what happened was that each I was very lonely for a good like in 2015 was a it was a lonely time for me like personally, but also mm-hmm. because the, the you know the, the immigration had begun from Syria and Palestine and all that, and mm-hmm. uh, Europe has a way of pushing you away 
that I didn't know. So every, just being outside was always just uncomfortable. And this happened suddenly. And I remember then also meeting one of my, who's one of my best friends now, who is half Pakistani. And then also kind of talking to uh, Shahzad and Ijaz, who were my friends who lived in the same neighborhood. Each thing, like, you know, each time they would, they would say, they would say, like, they, you know, they would tell me to come sit down or they would say, Ki, uh, you know, they would, it would for, for us, it would like, for them, it would be a simple thing to say where they would say, ghar pe mulk mein kya hal hai? which is already, you know, which means that like, what's, what's happening back home in your land is already like, to me, like things like that became a bit, I, I still remember them. And I would go more and more just so I could speak to them just because I felt more like myself. How much is place tied into your allegiance to language? For instance, it even before you went to Belgium, you had that Delhi Urdu connection, right? So do you feel like it started off as a very Delhi thing that then took a life of its own? And did you feel like, you know, like that is why this love for Urdu began in the first place? I mean, you touched on it at the beginning a little bit, but like how how do you see geography playing in all of this? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. No, I think it did be- begin as a Delhi thing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I've spent my whole life trying to I don't know this sounds it sounds like a very kind of corny romantic thing to say but I do love Delhi and my sister says this to me all the time she's like I think you love Delhi more than any of us do but you just don't like it often and you don't like it very much. <laughs> that's brilliant I, yeah so I think so I yeah so I think like that's essentially been my whole life with uh with trying to explain Delhi to people you know and honestly every kind of criticism that it gets from everywhere is completely justified. And it is, you know, but to me, I remember when I was growing up and uh, I would, uh, you know, my, the, the school that I went to, they take us to older parts of it. So we'd go to the center where uh, the Lodi kings had tombs. Mm-hmm. And then we'd go, to, we'd, we'd go to Purani Delhi, which is a whole other world. And the way they speak there is just anyone over there speaks beautifully. And they also talk in this really specific dialect called Kalkhandari, which is only specific to them. And it's just, you know, it's just like, it, it makes more sense to what is happening everywhere than mm. English or the Hindi that we speak now does. So Urdu does, for me, have a really, uh, it has a really big connection to this city. And there's just so much that can be explained in Urdu about Delhi that cannot uh, mm. in Hindi or in um, in English, and I think we have there, there's this kind of uh, ancient storytelling form that originated in Delhi during when Shah Jahan was here, and it's called Dastango. Mm-hmm. And they also do, um, you know, they do oral Urdu storytelling. And I've been to a bunch ever since I started studying, and it makes, um, yeah, it just makes complete sense to just describe a person that lives in the bylanes of Purani Delhi, but in this kind of long-winded uh, poetic way, it makes way more sense to just talk about them just like that because I think that's what. You know, that's the city is a little bit, it's full of impulses. So I think that's where Urdu comes in. Uh, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us, Sharanya. The piece that you wrote uh, on Long Reads, Coming Home One Word at a Time, is absolutely b- beautiful and we'll definitely link it for our listeners. Um, and we hope to see, I mean, we hope to see much more of your work uh, outside of the food space as well in the future. Yeah, thank you. That's <laughs> that's that's really lovely that you said that because that's what I'm trying, that, that's exactly what I want to do now. So, Nikhil, I recently read 
this medium article by Sajit Pai mm-hmm. um he is in media and venture capital and he basically introduces this concept of the Indo-Anglian which is a subgroup of people who speak English as their first and primary language mm-hmm. versus you know people who are English firsts who will maybe speak it very fluently and comfortably at work so he basically he uses interesting data sets to create what is part satiric satirical academic sounding uh, content about the status of english in india mm-hmm. and how many people are actually how the rising number of uh, people are speaking it and an interesting observation he makes is that it's usually people who come from two different communities or ethnicities like a tamil person marrying a bengali mm-hmm. and when they have children the child's lingua franca becomes english Right. And it's that much easier than straddling all these multiple identities. So I sent the article to you. You obviously had some commentary about it. What did what did you think of some of the arguments that he made? Well, I mean, I read it as part satire as well. Yeah. And so with that reading, I feel like I feel like this uh class of people that put English above all the other languages they speak in India and uh that have an upper class sort of way of life i feel like those people have existed for a long time in the country mm-hmm. and i feel like just because they speak english doesn't i feel like it it's more their economic uh class that influence who they are rather mm-hmm. than english these people are the ones who go to international schools they go abroad for college they end up they end up either immigrating to another country in the west or mm-hmm. they have a lot of family there mm-hmm. and so as a result english becomes uh used in the households to connect with the other relatives mm-hmm. and also just you know it's because they're in international schools that's the language that they end up speaking the most yeah but i would say that i think purely because of a few factors like globalization or more intermarriage mm. this subset is growing right. and the, there's an interesting phenomenon in the entertainment industry where content creation companies are able to create shows and other forms of entertainment that resonate specifically with this group so for instance 10 to 15 years ago if you take a tamil film or even a bollywood film even the most elite strata that was depicted would always speak in english or uh, sorry in hindi or tamil because that game is all about numbers it's about going to the cinemas and getting the box office numbers and applying to the lowest common denominator in, including in tier 2 and tier 3 cities mm-hmm. and that was usually the language of that region right whereas now we have streaming platforms putting out shows where most of the conversation happens in english or right. a sizable chunk of it and even if the audience viewership for it is small mm. it's specifically catered to these people who after watching English and Hollywood shows are now able to see characters who look like them and speak like them also speaking English. Right. And I think that's an interesting development in addition to the concurrent rise. So of- what are some of the shows that you're talking about just to give listeners context? So on Amazon Prime you have uh, Four More Shots Please, there's Made in Heaven. Mm-hmm. Then I think before that there are a lot of regional like local streaming platforms uh, including YouTube put out a couple of web series in uh, Navin Richards Better Life Foundation where most of the Right. communication was in English. Then you have a couple of shows, I think TVF if I'm not mistaken. Mm. had a few and then uh, little little things is that the one where they speak yeah. like english like they switch more comfortably right right yeah i see i definitely see what you're saying and it's also interesting to see this trend along with 
another trend in uh, the indian internet which is uh, more vernacular products more mm. regional language products that actively remove english from the conversation entirely yeah. right you look at share chat which has received a lot of investment um, for its regional language social network you look at vocal which is another app that's raised a lot of money daily hunt prakilipi which is a platform that i just found recently that you can publish regional language stories in mm-hmm. so it's interesting how we were seeing these two different trends happening at the same time yeah do you think that uh, you know something that my parents talk to me all the time is how because i'm not fluent in tamil and if i don't end up becoming fluent in tamil in the future mm-hmm. my kids will not have any connection to the language yeah and the culture and gets diluted culture gets eroded yeah. and you know the language basically dies out mm. and i've been hearing that for a while <laughs> <laughs> but when when you look at trends like with chat chat and all these apps and how thriving they are and you look at um uh yeah i mean you look at that trend mm. so do you think that regional languages are dying out i don't think so i think the ones that face the biggest risk of dying out are really the ones that are very isolated that are very that only have a few hundred speakers right now because i think there are some statistics that say that in the past between 1950 and 2010 230 mm-hmm. languages went extinct and today a third of the world's languages have fewer than 1000 speakers left and every 2 weeks a language dies but i highly doubt that that language is going to be tamil or telugu <laughs> or you know mandarin i mean we have the superstars so <laughs> exactly so he's going to keep it going <laughs> but i think especially for the lesser spoken languages that's definitely used as a source of guilt mm. i've heard this come from a lot of uh, jewish families where people say if you don't marry a jew and uh, have your children speak hebrew you're almost disregarding your culture and the traumatic history that it's experienced in the past uh, 70 to 60 years i think that's a lot i i actually had a very earnest conversation with a young man who got emotional about this responsibility and i think that's that's a lot to carry on your shoulders But what about the languages uh, that are often used by Indian tribes, mm-hmm. Adivasis, all these different marginalized communities within the country who don't have the economic sp- uh, uh, power to migrate, to uh, immigrate to other countries, to have a diaspora community? Basically, what happens to these communities? It's a very interesting question because we. lose that you know there are certain things that you can only say in your own language like mm-hmm. you i think you pointed out like the way the snow feels for instance tamil would not be able to really portray that because we don't have snow in tamil nadu right. right so the language you speak says so much about your culture where you're from your geography values yeah so you're talking specifically about uh, there's a dialect in uh, himachal pradesh where uh, they have over two, 200 words and phrases to describe snow for yeah. example how snow looks in the moonlight um how snow floats in a river dis- words to describe those phenomena yeah. and that uh, ex- the the fact that the dialect has those many phrases is sort of an extension of the culture in which that language is used yeah and i think that gives us a great chance to express ourselves and there's this um quote from a national geographic article by the found, co-founder of wiki tongues mm-hmm. which is a an organization that's trying to record all the languages of the world in a way that even if a language goes extinct you can teach yourself that language if after the fact so he says when humanity loses a language we also lose the potential for greater diversity in art music literature and oral traditions 
uh, would the music of Beyonce, for example, be the same in a language other than English? Um, because it's it's so, and the English that she speaks is so much a result of how her journey has evolved, how her ancestors have mapped out their own lives, right? And the migration of African Americans. Yeah, and the the African American vernacular dialect yeah. was not studied by uh, the American academic community for a long time. In fact, yeah. one of the foremost academics is at Penn, right? Bill LaBeouf. Mm. And before his work, it was... It, it Because it didn't fit the standard British English that uh, most white Americans would speak, or the standard American English, it was sort of pushed to the side. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's similar to uh, something happening in Singapore where Singlish, which is a you know sort of a creole where it has... Uh, all the different um, dialects, all the different languages spoken in um, Singapore, mm. Chinese and English and uh, Tamil, Tamil Malay. Malay, all of that is sort of combined together with its own uh, uh, idiosyncrasies. Yeah. The government has, not in a strong way, but they've alluded to the fact that Singaporeans should speak proper English. There's an idea of what proper English is. Yeah, and uh, the script for Mandarin, for instance, is simplified in countries like Singapore as opposed to maybe mainland China. So we see things getting easier for people to encourage them to speak, uh, to continue speaking a certain language. But does it mean that it also gets diluted? And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. For instance, if I choose to have a child with somebody who doesn't speak Tamil, am I going to be very particular that that poor child speaks English, Tamil, that guy's (laughs) language? What if he's like, one third something than like all three of what he's from. Right. It just feels like a lot. But then at the same time, like, oh, like diversity languages are fun. But we also spoke with somebody else this morning who feels like that's just the natural course of things. Right. I I do think that the variety in language is, uh, you know, a blessing to the earth in a way that it provides a lot of cultural difference and uh, and a lot of it, you know, a lot of diversity for people to enjoy. Mm. But the fact that languages are dying out are not because nobody's making an effort to preserve them, or maybe it's an un- they unintentionally die. They unintentionally die out because this it's a form of a natural death or a slow death where it's not the first time that this is this phenomenon has happened. Over 2,000 years, a lot of civilizations had their own dialects. Um, in certain areas and when they were exposed to other regions where the dialects weren't spoken or weren't required, they, they did die a slow death. Mm. So I don't believe that there will, what I believe that instead of uh, no one language being spoken in many years, I believe that there will be uh, a core group of languages spoken around the globe rather than the many dialects that we had originally, purely because originally speaking people do have a strong culture in certain regions, but uh, over, if if you if you if you dilute that and go to smaller uh, villages, it's possible that that those dialects might not make it just because of their lack of requirement for survival. In Does the that world. make you sad? I not particularly. As long as there are there are prominent languages and there is a diversity and there is a cultural celebration of those languages, I think in personally I sh- I would be okay as long as the world has that diversity. Mm. And I don't think that the world will lose that diversity because we still have countries who have their own prominent languages. It's probably the subset of those languages that are under threat, which in its right, these, these, these 
languages have been already dying out over 2000 years and I could feel sad for them but I know it's a natural process and that makes me accept it easier. So for context that was Ashman Shanmugam a leading linguist who conveniently <laughs> happens to be my flatmate and cousin. Uh, contrasting to this idea that languages are uh following the natural way of things right that mm-hmm. there are some languages that will die out eventually it's interesting to put that in contrast to what um an indian linguist uh, ganesh devi talks about and he's been uh, running the people's linguistic survey of india for about a decade now and he says that you know when a language dies a system of knowledge dies yeah. and basically that a uh, language carries a body of values that help us perceive ourselves and our place in the world and i think you know just a basic example of that that i found interesting just thinking about this was how in tamil we've got a system of values built into verbs for example if i say okaru versus okaranga mm. okaranga is like a very polite way of asking someone to sit down yeah. and that's linked to the verb but as in english i would say please sit down the mm. word please is the uh, is affixed to the verb as it, a sign of respect as a sign of respect yeah. but the verb itself doesn't have that respect built into it yeah. so you know you could take that basic example to say well in tamar you know tamar communities there's a lot of respect for elders and um for people outside the immediate family whereas mm-hmm. in english it's more individualized or you know the communities there it's it's less about the the community as a whole but mm-hmm. about people individuals right so mm-hmm. you could make that distinction and i think um it's interesting to think about that something as basic as that is built into the language yeah for sure um so so coming back to this idea right if a language dies a system of knowledge dies so does it fall upon communities both in uh country, inside native uh communities and in diaspora communities to preserve these systems of knowledge i think that's a lot of responsibility and maybe it's not up to each individual person maybe it's something that you do as a group but then isn't it a lot of work yeah i i think it is but what if you're not naturally linguistically inclined and you're the last living person who speaks a certain language that's a lot of pressure to carry on your shoulders <laughs> especially if you're like 90 year old 90 years old and yeah so so what should those people do i mean should they take a take their phones and record all the words they know in a language and send it on a google drive to wiki tongues they probably should do that what else can they do but what's the point of a language if no one knows how no one knows how to speak it and and so much of a language is how it's passed down right i learned a language you and i learn, all of us learn languages because we heard our parents speaking it that was our first introduction mm So imagine if you have to teach yourself something through a, a, a video right and you don't have anybody to ask doubts of then you're going to morph that language you're probably going to make rules up along the way because you're like should I have nobody to ask like yeah and i mean if you have no one to speak a language with and you're just you're just learning words that you just say to yourself mm. what's the point i mean i don't know i guess we should think about that Yeah, yeah, I think it's definitely worth thinking about. And if you're if you're still with us at this point, please let us know what you think. Can you write to us at creatinglifepodcast@gmail.com and let us know if you're linguistically confused or if you come from a background that has a lot of languages or if you speak one that's really not that widely spoken and whether you feel any kind of responsibility to keep preserving it. <laughs>
any interesting thoughts we'll bring on the show and maybe have a discussion about it creating life is produced and hosted by me sindhuri nandakumar along with nikhil venkatesa our episodes are recorded at audio studios chennai our associate producer c kirinan and recording engineer siddarthas you can find us online at creatinglifepodcast.com or write to us at creatinglifepodcast@gmail.com at